You're listening to Illini Life Audio, messages from a community of Christian believers on the campus of University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. For more audio and video content, visit IlliniLife.org. Plants yielding seed and fruit, fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so, the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let there be for signs for the seasons and for days and years, and let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the sea and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over the livestock of over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created him and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food and every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens and everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life. I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested in the seventh day from all his works that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his works that he had done in creation. These are the generations of the heaven and the earth. When they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land. And no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land. And there was no man to work the ground. And the mist was going up from the land. And was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man 
of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Skip ahead a few verses. It says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, surely you will die. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heaven and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and all birds of the heaven and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. So I just read essentially the first two chapters of Genesis. And what we find in these two chapters is God's perfect creation account. We see the artistry of God, and we see creation in complete harmony. In most creation accounts of the ancient Near East, creation is the result of some type of warfare, some type of act of great violence. Virtually never is creation deliberately planned in other kind of ancient Near East accounts of creation. But the account the Bible gives us depicts something very different. It's unique in its account of creation. Scientist Francis Collins describes it this way. He says, when you look from the perspective of the scientists at the universe, it looks as if it knew we were coming. There are 15 constants, the gravitational constants, very constants around the strong and weak nuclear force, etc., that have precise values. If any one of those constants was off by even one part in a million, or in some cases by one part in a million million, the universe could not have actually come to the point where we see it. Matter would not have been able to coalesce. There would have not been, there would not have been no galaxies, stars, planets, or people. So a wise God creates everything and he pronounces it good, and we see that phrase over and over and over again. And then at the end of the sixth day, what does he say? We say it says it's very good. And the Hebrew word for this perfect harmony that we find in the first two chapters of Genesis is shalom. Some of you are familiar with that. Shalom is translated in English as peace, but it means so much more than that. Often in our English version, peace means the absence of war, the absence of violence or hostility. The Hebrew word means so much more. It means wholeness, fullness, harmony, joyful flourishing of life. And that's what we find in those first two chapters. The shalom, the peace of God was present 
among the people of God, and it was good. God had provided everything for humanity. He provided companionship. He provided water and food and shelter and work and a perfect relationship with him. And as probably many, if not most of us know, that's not how the story stays. It doesn't stay that way very long. We don't know how long it stays that way, but when we pick up the story in the next chapter in Genesis, um, we find this, and, and these verses will be up on the screen. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the tree in the garden, but God did not say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing for the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some of it and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. And so in these six verses, we have a very simple, probably familiar, admittedly very bizarre story. And these six verses are described as the fall, the fall of humanity. The scope and the scale of this fall is enormous. It's the part of the story where everything begins to unravel. It's the part of the story where sin enters the story. But what really was the sin that kind of Adam and Eve commit in this story? Was it simply about not eating a particular fruit from a particular tree? What's really going on behind the scenes? Adam and Eve were commissioned by God to be rulers with God and under God. They were to rule and care for creation but they were to do that under God's good rule. But this was not enough for them. They wanted to be God themselves. They wanted control, and they wanted to be in charge. Scott McKnight describes sin this way. He says, sin is usurping the place of God. And to usurp, I think we have the definition up there, is to take a position of power or importance illegally or by force. And so Adam and Eve, they wanted to be like God even though they weren't God. And so Genesis 3, in these first six verses, it's kind of, again, it's this familiar but bizarre story. It unmasks not just their sin, but the sin that has infiltrated all of humanity, the sin that has infiltrated you and I. Humanity aches to rule the cosmos. We ache to be in charge. We want to be God. You want to be God. I want to be God in my life. And the ache and desire to be God when we're not God is what sin is all about. Sin, at its core, is usurping God's place in the world and putting us there instead. And this is what's going on in Genesis 3 when he says, your eyes will be open and you will be like God. The serpent says that to entice them, and the irony of it all is they were already like God. They were made in the image of God. They were God's image bearers, and and they knew good. Now they ate of the fruit, and they knew evil as well. Let's read on in the story, um, picking up in verse 7 of Genesis chapter 3. It says, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. 
And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and you have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return." The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and flaming swords that turned every way to guard the way of the tree of life. So we've got the consequences, right? The aftermath of sin in those verses. And the consequences were pretty great. We also see how Adam and Eve respond in that moment. So Adam and Eve, they decide to act on the serpent's lie. And four things immediately come crashing down. The first thing you probably notice, and again, this is probably a familiar passage to you, is they become shameful of their bodies. They hide. They cover themselves. Second thing, they became afraid of God, right? And so they hide from him. Third, they turn on one another and they blame one another for their choices. And fourth, they're escorted from this perfect garden in Eden into a world that would not cooperate with them in the same way. And in those kind of four consequences, we see everything that fell apart at the fall, everything that was broken. The relationship with God moves from one of trust to mistrust. Sin damages their self-identity and brings shame into the story. Sin causes them to turn on one another. The relationship with one another, this perfect flesh union that was created, is now warring against one another. And then there's also cosmic effects that happen. The world that they live in now fights against them, or to put it another way, sin brings broken relationships with God, broken relationships with ourself, broken relationships with one another, and broken relationships with creation. So those are kind of the four things that we're going to walk through this weekend. Sin brings forth broken relationships with God, first and foremost. Adam and Eve had this perfect loving relationship with God, and then it turns to something of fear. They run and hide. 
And we, just like them, now carry that same affliction. We can be around God, and sometimes we can feel fear when we're thinking of him. We can feel distant from God. We can feel estranged from God. We can find ourselves running because of our own disobedience in our life. The one relationship that can truly satisfy us, the one relationship where someone truly knows everything about us is now severed. And instead of running to God, we run to all types of other things. We run to drugs and sex and alcohol, or maybe we look to more acceptable things in our lives like marriage and family and career and friends or success. And we create idols out of tons of things. We create idols out of bad things and create idols out of good things. And we think these things are going to satisfy us, and they, they come back void. Often we fail in reaching our goals that we think, man, if I do this, then I will be fulfilled. But it's even more damning when we actually reach those goals and we find ourselves empty. Cynthia Heimel of The Village Voice says this about actors making it in show, biz, show business. She says, the giant thing that they were striving for, that fame thing that was going to make everything okay, that was going to make their lives bearable, that was going to fill them with ha-ha happiness had happened, and the next day they woke up and they were still them. The disillusionment turned them howling and insufferable. And right, that happens, right? You, I, you know, back in the day, I'd watch all these VH1 behind the musics, right? And it would always be like, this band, they came from nothing, and then they got successful, and they were top in the world, and then they all did drugs and died <laughs> every single time. You know, I think it's because you think, man, if I get to this point, then my life will be good. And then it's even more unbearable when you get there, you arrive to the mountaintop and you still feel empty. So our relationship with God was broken. And what was broken, the fulfillment and the intimacy that we find with only God. Tim Keller says this about sin. He says, sin is seeking to establish a sense of self by making something else more central to your significance, purpose, and happiness than your relationship to God. And and that's what happens when sin enters in. Often we place ourselves there. So we have a broken relationship with God, but then we have a broken relationship with self. You guys probably noticed at the end of chapter 2, it feels significant, right? It always stands out when you read it, where it says, Adam and Eve, they were naked and they felt no shame. <laughs> it feels like a weird, like out of all the observations, out of all the things the author could say, they, he makes a point in saying that. But then sin enters into their story, and shame enters in. What a terrible word. What a terrible feeling to have, deep shame. The way we view ourselves. We can all think some really terrible things about ourselves. We think things like, I'm fat, I'm dumb, I'm not good enough, I'm ugly, I'm unlovable, I suck. We suffer from the sin of self-loathing or the sin of overcompensation, trying to prove to others or to maybe ourselves that we're finally worth something. And so when Adam sinned, anxiety entered the story, depression entered the story, worry, suicide, shame, things that wreck our lives and wreck the lives of those that we love. Currently, there's a small hole in my dining room wall. That hole was created about a year and a half ago. I was outside with my three kids, and I don't even remember what happened, but I remember being so angry with them, and I said or did something that probably wasn't even that bad right, in the grand schemes of things that I could say, right? And, and I go back inside, and I'm so angry at myself, and I just kind of pop the wall. And <laughs> I put a freaking hole in the wall. So if I'm not feeling enough shame about how crappy of a dad I am, now I look at it and think, 
I'm, one, I'm a crappy dad, and now I just put a hole in the wall, and I'm a crappy man because I don't know how to fix this hole in the wall. <clears throat> and it's so, I still got it. It's still there. I don't know how to do drywall work. That's what you pay people for. But I'm doing campus ministry, so just those only work that way. This is funny, but man, it wasn't funny in that moment. I remember, I remember when I, uh, Lincoln, I've, he's eight now. I remember I dropped him when he was one and a half. I like tripped. And I kind of fell and he hit his head and he was fine, but I was so mad at myself. I remember walking into this hallway and just punching this wall over and over again. Because how could I? How could I just kind of let him get hurt in that, right? And so we think these negative, nasty things towards ourselves. We have this broken relationship with ourselves, with our identity, with who we are. Not only that, not only our broken relationship with God and with self, but then with one another happens, and we see that with Adam and Eve, right? We see it right away. We see Adam throw his wife under the bus, right? God says, what would you do? And Adam says, well, my wife actually gave me the fruit, and actually, God, you're the one who put her here. So he kind of throws, he points his finger at God, and then he points his finger at his wife, and then God's like, okay, what about this Eve? And Eve's like, the serpent made me do it. And so there's no, there's no accountability right in there. There's the, the relationships are now broken. And what do we see with Adam and Eve's sin? We're going to look at this um, story tomorrow. But they're kids. Their first two kids, one murders the other, right? Man. How far and how quickly did relationships fall apart? Now racism and hate and violence and divorce and selfishness and greed and lust and exploitation are placed in the human condition. Sometimes when I'm talking to college students, we may get in a question like, are, are people generally good? Are they generally bad? Right? And it probably depends on what your definition of good or bad is. And so that's a philosophical conversation that you can have and i think people are capable of very good things because we're created in the image of god and so we all have dignity but we are all given to selfishness self-preservation we very quickly throw other people under the bus aka alan (laughs) okay that's not my notes but he brought it up um anybody who has kids you know this right like i remember my oldest kid when he was like one and a half Two, I don't know how old he was. I just saw him do something he shouldn't do. I know he did it. I looked at him. I said, did you do that? He looks at me. He goes, no, I didn't do that. I didn't put that there. And I'm laughing because it's funny, but I'm also thinking you're such a little liar. And yet he didn't learn how to lie, right? Like my wife and I never have lied in front of him to that point. That probably could be true. And even if we would have, we're still smart enough where he wouldn't know that, you know? And so he didn't have to be taught to lie Inside of him was self-preservation, and it damages our relationships. Many thinkers prior to World War I championed progress and that humanity is just getting better and better and better, and then World War I hit, and not as many people thought that, and then World War II hit, and then people were like, I'm not so sure if we're heading in that direction. And every week, right, this week there is a big thing in the news. Every week we can find some level of evil, and, I, you know, we can think about national things that are happening. You know, the thing happened in Las Vegas. But I can look at Muncie. I can look at the local paper. And I can see people stabbing one another, people um, overdosing on drugs while their kids are in the bed with them. I mean, these are stories that are happening every day in the city that I live. Children go hungry. 
The rich exploit the poor. We manipulate one another. We're passive-aggressive. We hold grudges in our heart. We're selfish. Politicians lie. The strong exploit the weak. Our relationships are broken. I don't know if you're like me. Sometimes you just like, why are relationships so freaking hard? Particularly even with the people you love and care about. You know what's going to make me leave ministry one day? Is relationships with people in ministry and people I love. I've seen plenty of good friends leave ministry, leave our church. Things have happened. And not even one person has been right or wrong. It's because there's this brokenness in relationships. And it's difficult and it's painful and I hate it. I was talking to a guy who used to be a part of our church earlier today on the drive down here. I grabbed lunch with him, and he just told me his small group just imploded. He said, it doesn't exist anymore. It existed two weeks ago, but two couples, they couldn't get along with one another, and they got into a fight, and then now everybody's gone. And he was really sad. He said, what am I going to do Wednesday nights? That was, this was a recent graduate. This was finally meeting like needs of relationships in his life. And in the church, even, the relationships were just too hard. So we got a broken relationship with God, with self, with one another, and then finally with creation. Humanity's relationship with creation was fractured as well. Human beings are so integral to the fabric of things that when humans turned from God, the whole world came undone. Disease, genetic disorder, famine, natural disasters, aging, and in particular, death entered the story. The story of Noah and the flood, just a few chapters later, right, illustrates how far and drastically creation is kind of warred against humanity. The world is no longer as it should be. Creation is no longer as it should be, as it was in the garden. We experience aging and sickness and death, and it's painful. It's painful to talk about in the abstract, but it's painful when it hits us at home. I'll show a picture right here if you can put it up on the screen. Um, That picture is of my daughter when she was two weeks old. Um, She was born a happy, healthy baby. Nothing was wrong. There was no concerns. Two weeks in her life, she got bacterial meningitis. And in the course of 24 hours, she went from being happy and healthy to fighting for her life. In the course of 24 hours, we had doctors telling us that she may never walk or talk or be able to feed herself again and that she may not even make it. And obviously, you can imagine that was a difficult time in my life, in my wife's life. And I remember we were in Riley Children's Hospital in Indianapolis. It was after the second time she had been lifeline. And I remember just thinking how sad this was. And what even felt so sad was she was one of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of children in this hospital. And some were sicker than her, and some weren't as sick, some were going to get better, and some weren't. I could walk, and this sounds bad, but I could walk in like a, like an, uh, this probably isn't politically correct, like an old folks home, you know, and I, you see like older people and you're like, okay, like this is really sad too, but something feels more right about that. You're in there and you're in this children's hospital and you're like, all these children, they are dying and they're struggling and parents are weeping and they're torn apart and you just think, this is messed up. This is not right. This is not how things should be. And sin, when it entered the story, it led to death. And when we experience death, I'm sure most of us have experienced some level of death, right? Someone we know, someone we care about has passed away. It just doesn't feel right. James 1, 13 through 15 says this, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desires and enticed. Then after desire is conceived, it gives birth to, death, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. 
So like Adam and Eve, we are tempted and our desire to sin grows and eventually we fall in sin and the sin leads to death. I like what Scott McKnight says this about sin and death. He says, sin leads to death each and every time, world without end from beginning to end. Sin has one goal and that's the goal of death. Death, physical death, emotional death, psychological death, mental death, desire death, spiritual death, final death, death after death and death beyond death. And we see that from a distance, the effects of sin, and we see it up close and it causes us to cry out and just feel like, what is wrong with this world? That this world is messed up. People around me are messed up. I'm messed up. And it causes me to put my hands in the air and say, God, help, help me. Rescue me. Help this world. And that's exactly what God did. At some point in our lives, we're confronted with the fact that we're not the person we think we want to be, the person we want to be or the think, person we think we should be. We can have this image to think that we're going to be this perfect spouse or parent, son, daughter, friend, student, Christian, and eventually and probably often we fail. And if you're like me, you're surprised and you think, I'm going to try harder next time, or I'm going to do better next semester, and our life can feel like a prison of unmet expectations. Yet in the midst of all of this, in the midst of all this sin, in the midst of the pain in our own lives, and with one another, and with God, and with creation, God has come to make all things new. But in order to, to do that, in order to see that, we must first own up to what went wrong. And one thing that what went wrong is sin is real, and we all have sin in our life. We're all sinners. To say that each of us are sinners isn't harmful. It's true. It tells the true story of who we are and what the gospel is designed to accomplish. So we have lost God's shalom. We've lost his peace. We've lost it physically, spiritually, socially, psychologically, culturally. Things have completely fallen apart. Yet, there is still hope. And we even see that hope in Genesis 3. And we're going to talk about that hope through the course of this weekend. God gives them clothing to cover their shame. He lovingly banishes them from the garden so they won't live forever in this state. And he proclaims that one day the seed of Eve will crush the serpent's head and that one day has come in Jesus Christ. So Jesus has set out to change and redeem everything that was lost in the fall. He's come to give us a new relationship with God and with ourself, with one another, and even with creation. Jesus is redeeming all things. And so I'm going to leave you with that. Again, tonight is not the most inspiring time, right? Tonight is just what went wrong, what has fallen apart. And as we walk through this weekend, we're going to see how Jesus is redeeming everything that has been broken. Let me pray.